Guten Morgen America. Very early. We're going to listen to Legal AF. Trump arrested, indicted, arraigned, and losing his mind. Thanks for 221K. This week, Donald Trump indicted again, yeah. arrested yeah. again, yeah. fingerprinted and arraigned. That's right. A Washington, D.C. grand jury uh, returned a four-count criminal indictment against Donald Trump in connection with special counsel Jack Smith's criminal case for Donald Trump's crimes relating to the 2020 election and the January 6th insurrection first. Let's talk about the indictment, the counts, the co-conspirators, the surgical precision with which special counsel Jack Smith crafted this indictment in order to get a 2024 trial before the election. Next, let's talk about the federal judge presiding over this case. The judge who was assigned is none other than federal judge Tanya Chutkin along with the magistrate judge up at the Yaya. Law and order judges. Trump's worst nightmare. And these judges who are the complete opposite of Judge Eileen Cannon down in the Southern District of Florida, they are already moving this case forward in an expedited manner. Then, let's talk about the arraignment before the magistrate judge where Donald Trump pled not guilty. What went down inside the court? What went down outside the court? And let's talk about the next major hearing set to take place on August 28th and the warning that was given to Donald Trump by the magistrate judge, which doesn't seem like Donald Trump has followed. By the way, Popak, did you see that the Democrats in the House of Representatives, led by Congress member Adam Schiff, sent a letter to the administrator of the federal courts requesting that all case proceedings be televised? Not sure they're going to allow it, but I'm glad that Democrats at least are asking for transparency. Then let's turn to the frivolous defenses that Donald Trump's attorneys have been parading to the media. They're claiming this is a freedom of speech issue. It's an advice of counsel issue. They were relying on John Eastman. And also, Trump's lawyers are arguing that Washington, D.C. is not a fair venue. Popak and I will describe and explain why all of these defenses are just completely frivolous. And of course, Donald Trump can't control himself at all. And what appears at least to me to be a direct violation of the magistrate judge admonition during the arraignment, Donald Trump made this post, if you go after me, I am coming after you. Well, shortly after that, special Jack Smith was like bet and immediately filed a protective order motion Friday evening that included that post in it. So then at around 1 a.m., uh, thereafter, Donald Trump got scared and had his spokesperson respond that no, he wasn't threatening the judge or prosecutors. In the ultimate gaslighting, Trump's spokesperson said, 
Trump was referring to the rhinos and the Koch brothers and the Republican donor class. That's who he was threatening. But federal judge Tanya Chutkin was having none of it, and she issued an order this morning requiring Trump to respond to the protective order motion by no later than August 7th, moving this case along. Talk about historic events, Michael Popak, and of course, another historic event to come. We're going to turn to Georgia, where barricades have been going up, and we expect a criminal indictment of Donald Trump by Fulton County District Attorney Tony Willis, which could come as early as this week. Michael Popak, a historic, historic week. Indeed. Indeed. How you doing, Michael Popak? <laughs> so great. I was just doing math while you were while you were going through our lineup today. Because when you and I two and a half years ago said, You want to do this thing at the intersection of law and politics called legal AF? I said, sure, and I was worrying about content. We now have a, pre a former president who is four-time indicted, soon to be five-time indicted, for a total of 75 current felony counts. I think it's actually have... 78 felony well, counts. Thir 30, well, 37, 34, and 4, right? If, uh, so far. So far. Am I missing something? Well, it's all right. I'll do my math. 37, 34, and 4. 17 convictions for his main organization up in up in New York. So I'm at about 92, and we haven't even heard from Fawny Willis yet. And whatever the right-wing maggot want to say, okay, 100 or more felonies against somebody is not a witch hunt. It's not based on prosecutorial misconduct or election interference in 2024 or a desire to cover up because Hunter Biden did bad, bad things when daddy wasn't looking, or whatever else they're trying to link in some perverse, logical, illogical fallacy. It has to do with the conduct of one man while he ran for office, while in office, and after he left office. And nobody's, no one is to blame for this hundred plus felonies and counting than Donald J. Trump and the J stands for John, apparently based on comments he made of his arraignment. So, Popak, let's get into it. Let's talk about the indictment that was uh, filed um, on Tuesday. It is very detailed. Ironically, it is 45 pages in length. It has four counts that I want you to get into. But Special Counsel Jack Smith in this uh, indictment, I think, really narrowed and focused these issues. You and I had been speculating that if Special Counsel Jack Smith wanted to, this could have been a thousand-count indictment. This probably could have been a five-thousand-count indictment. Special Counsel Jack Smith could have brought charges for money laundering, for wire fraud, for campaign finance violations relating to the various political action organizations that Donald Trump used to commit crimes. But when you do that, what you open yourself up for is you have forensic accountants come in, economists come in, massive troves of financial discovery, tens and millions of documents, 
thousands, tens of thousands, potentially, of witnesses. So what does all that mean? Time. That means time. And that a case could take years, as much as five to ten years, to go to trial with some of those really complex financial cases. So, special counsel Jack Smith knew that, Michael Popak, and he made a surgically precise case. Jack Smith had to hold back criminal counts, thousands of them, in order for the greater good of our democracy to do everything he could to position this case for 2024. Of course, you're going to go through the various counts. You're going to go through the co-conspirators. I'm going to make one other observation, though, here, because we're going to talk in a little bit about the defenses, talk later in this episode, about the defenses that are being paraded to the media by Trump's lawyers. Special counsel Jack Smith, in addition to quoting people and evidence and all of these things, he predicted in the complaint what Donald Trump's lawyers were going to be saying as part of their PR campaign, campaign and what they were going to be saying um, as one of their defenses. And he addressed it right here in paragraph three. Right away, he goes, Donald Trump had a free speech right. I want to acknowledge that from the very outset. Special counsel Jack Smith said the defendant had a right, like every American, to speak publicly about the election and even to claim falsely that there had been outcome-determinative fraud during the election and that he had won. He was also entitled to formally challenge the results of the election through lawful and appropriate means, such as by seeking recounts or audits of the popular vote in states or filing lawsuits challenging ballots and procedures. Indeed, in many cases, Donald Trump did pursue these methods of contesting the election results. His efforts to change the outcome in any state through recounts, audits, or legal challenges were uniformly unsuccessful. And then it goes into where the crimes were committed, right? Where it goes from free speech, whiny, lamb, Donald Trump, the election stolen, you know, and special counsel Jackson, you have a First Amendment right to be a whiny fascist baby, but what you don't have the right to do is then weaponize those lies and then engage in conduct that constitutes a conspiracy to overthrow the results of a free and fair election. Paragraph 4. Shortly after election day, the defendant also pursued unlawful means of discounting legitimate votes and subverting the election results. In so doing, the defendant perpetrated three criminal conspiracies, a conspiracy to defraud the United States by using dishonesty, fraud, and deceit to impair, obstruct, and defeat the lawful federal government function by which the results of the presidential election are collected, counted, and certified by the federal government. Two. B, a conspiracy to corruptly obstruct and impede the January 6th congressional proceeding at which the collected results of the presidential election are counted and certified in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 1512K. And C, a conspiracy against the right to vote, to have one's vote counted in violation of 18 U.S.C. Section 241 Popoc. This is a detailed complaint state by state, goes through the battleground states, the specific conduct, 
quotes from former Vice President Pence, quotes from people in Donald Trump's inner circle, showing Donald Trump knew, showing intent. What were your major takeaways? Let's yeah. dig into this indictment. Yeah, and let's, let's do it um, at a high level and at a molecular level. You are so right that this is the product, this indictment, of prosecutorial decision-making and affirmative choice about what to put in the indictment that was necessary to indict and show the weight of evidence that's required to support an indictment, indictment itself, the uh, criminal counts of an indictment, and what was unnecessary to put in the indictment, both in terms of people at present and facts and allegations and themes and narratives and timelines that will, however, end up in a courtroom when the evidence is presented. Not everything, to remind people, not everything is put into an indictment. Not every piece of evidence, every scrap of testimony, every nuance, every narrative, every timeline ends up in an indictment. The prosecutor has to strike a balance, and this has been surgically struck by, by Jack Smith and his team to put in what is necessary in a speaking indictment in this way, in a conspiracy-based indictment in this way, to make out the elements of the crime and to put the defendant on notice as required by the Constitution of what he's being charged with, but no more and no less than that. The rest, the rest, these truckloads, or what I like to call shedloads of information, evidence, and testimony that's both provided to the other side in the discovery process, we'll talk about that in a little bit, and presented at trial through witnesses, oh, like people like Evan Corcoran, um, and others, Giuliani and Eastman and Boris Epstein and Ken Cheeseborough and Sidney Powell and the rest that are currently in this indictment um, co-conspirators, not in the caption, not as defendants. I'm going to talk about that in a minute. So we have that approach, and you could tell the decision-making tree, the decision-making rule for Jack Smith was as follows. If I don't have hard evidence corroborated multiple times by, by witness testimony and documents, I'm not putting it in my indictment. So, for example, we always thought, and it's like you and me and people that do this for a living, Ben, and we did it, that off the Jan 6th report in December, Jan 6th Special Select Committee on, on all things Jan 6th, that when they said that Donald Trump weaponized that crowd on January 6th, on purpose, starting with his tweet, be there, it's going to be wild, that this was part of his strategy to, when all else failed, attack the Capitol, stop the peaceful transfer of power, attack our democracy, and stop the electoral certification process. Jack Smith did it a different way. It's still in there. It is still one of the three or four major components of the conspiracy, we'll talk about them here on this, on this hot take, I'm not on this podcast, do so many hot takes with you, I forget where I'm at, but the, the, the way that Jack Smith did it, because you can tell he didn't feel he had the complete dead-to-rights evidence on this issue, is not that Donald Trump is being held responsible for starting, lighting the match that lit the flame that led to the explosion that attacked the Capitol, which is how the Gen 6 Committee portrayed it. He's saying that it started, almost like passive voice, it happened. The Jan 6th 
They left the ellipsis. Others skipped the ellipsis altogether in the speech speechifying by Donald Trump and Eastman and Giuliani and others, and they went right to attack the Capitol. What Jack Smith said is once that happened, Donald Trump and his henchmen and those around him, Eastman, Clark, and others, and Meadows, used that, used that attack to their benefit to also use as a cudgel, as a club, to stop the peaceful transfer of power. So it's a little bit different. It's not that they started it, but once it was in progress, they, they jumped on board and used that attack. And so that's why the count is listed there. The conspiracy elements are still the same. They're the, the tried and true elements that we saw in the Jan 6th report. You know, shout out and kudos to the Jan 6th committee. You've got the use, the fundamentally the heart of the indictment, the use of the fake electors, the development of the fake elector scheme by John Eastman, um, implemented by lawyers like Captain of Team Crazy, Rudy Giuliani, and Sidney Powell, and Ken Cheeseborough, and and then on the ground, the ground game of collecting all of these uh, fake electors, making sure in the battleground states these these uh, anti-patriots met in secret basements, signing what they said were electoral certificates for their state, put wax seals on it, and quill pens, and then how to deliver it both to the National Archive and Mike Pence, the next step of the chain. That was coordinated by conspirator number six, and that's got to be Boris Epstein, somebody that we've talked a lot about on Legal as being a lawyer for Donald Trump, sort of this year's Michael Cohen, a fixer, a, a, a guy that was is, is brought in Todd Blanche as the lawyer, sits at council tables, but not this time, at arraignment, we'll talk about that later, and considers himself to be some sort of political operative. He's there on the right in the picture, whispering into Nosferatu, I mean Giuliani's ear, in his three-piece, ever-present three-piece suit. Boris Epstein also ran the ground game to collect and coordinate the collection of all the fake electors. So the fake electors, and then you have the last component before you get to the Jan 6th insurrection and the use of that to stop the peaceful transfer of power, which is the pressure campaign on Mike Pence. Mike Pence, who's running apparently on a campaign right now for president, that relies on, and to quote or paraphrase him yesterday, nobody is above the Constitution. And anyone that tries to say they're above the Constitution should not hold a presidential office. And anybody that tries to get me to put them above my oath to the Constitution should not hold constitutional office. That's apparently his his campaign message to voters. It's not going well, I'll just put it that way, in the Republican Party. The things that were missing that were interesting, but I think will show up in the actual trial of the case, for things, Ben, that you and I had talked about, like the December 8th meeting in the White House, the, what Cassidy Hutchison referred to as uh, things are gone, you know, the wheels have fallen off and things have gone crazy in the West Wing, a screaming match involving Rudy Giuliani, um, uh, the Overstock, or what I call Overthrow.com guy, Patrick Byrne and Sidney Powell and Mike Flynn yelling and trying to convince then-President Trump to both suspend the Constitution, implement martial law, and seize voting machines until Pat Cipollone, the White House counsel, getting wind of the meeting, ran into the meeting to break it up and started questioning, why is everybody here? How did you all get in here? What are you doing here, overstock guy? And what are you talking about? And Eric Erzberg followed behind and telling Donald Trump he couldn't do it. 
that consideration of seizing voting machines, I assure you, will end up in a trial. It's just not something that Jack Smith felt he needed in order to make out the elements of his three separate conspiracies, but interrelated conspiracies that form the basis of the indictment. The one that we knew was coming because, you know, let's be honest, it's been strategic leaks. I know Karen, our Freeman Agnipolo, our co group disagrees with me on this, but there's been strategic leaking. And so we knew that the Section 241, 18 U.S.C. 241 claim, was going to be used in a very creative way to argue that the use of the fake elector certificates was, in effect, stuffing the ballot box, the electoral ballot box, with fake votes. And that kind of voter or vote fraud is handled with a law that came out of our reconstruction after the Civil War, in which a law was passed to ensure, you shouldn't have to have this law in the books, because the Constitution should be enough, but there needed to be a law to protect newly freed slaves in their ability to exercise their right to vote. And that body of Law 241, which is the driver for this indictment, for me, also comes out when you have that very um, perfectly put um, uh, ruling by uh, Judge um, uh, Thurgood Marshall, in which he said, everyone, everyone, Republican, Democrat, independent or otherwise, is entitled to a fair count of their vote. Everybody should be up in arms if having voted, your vote has been, uh, has been, the tally has been tampered with. And nothing tampers with the tally of a presidential election more than the ultimate thing that gets him the, the seat, White House, which is the electoral vote. We're an electoral vote country, not a popular vote country. So the popular votes are important only when you get to the electoral certificates, the electoral, the, the electors voting. So that is the ultimate steal. You, 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 popular vote, schmopular vote. Let's go right to steal the electorals. That's never been done before. And there you have section 241. But you're so right. And Karen was so right. And she said, we're going to see a two or three count indictment with very little other people in there because this case has to get to trial. But, and now we got the judge to do it before the election. One last thing, then. We're not done, as I said in a recent hot take. This is not a going out of business sale for Jack Smith. As he said in his press conference, there's more to do. We're still investigating. That's one. Two, witnesses are being pulled in. In this, this month, this grand jury is still in business. They did not shut the door and put up a gone fishing sign. And what we're going to see, obviously, because history is prologue, is two different things. And we'll continue to watch it only one place here. On the Midas Dutch Network, one, we're going to see a superseding indictment again. He got enough to get this thing out after nine months. Kudos to Jack Smith. He's got three, three indictments against Donald Trump in nine months, two in Mar-a-Lago, one here. But he's not done. Superseding indictment is likely against Donald Trump. But other co-conspirators being indicted individually in their own independent cases is also likely. It's either going to be some combination of John Eastman, who's not cooperating, Rudy Giuliani, who's barely cooperating, but when he, on his podcast, he tells the world he's fully in favor of Donald Trump every way, shape, and form. Ken Cheeseborough, who's not heard from too often except through counsel. Horace Epstein, who flew on the Trump jet to the arraignment, sat in the back of the room during the recent arraignment, and flew home with the president after the former president after the arraignment. He's likely to get indicted, and Sidney Powell. 
one or more or all six of those will likely be indicted in their own cases, on their own trial tracks, on their own thing, not consolidated and combined with Donald Trump's trial, in at some other later date and will continue to report. You know, I think that the proceedings before Judge Eileen Cannon in the other case where Donald Trump was criminally indicted back in June for the willful retention of national defense information, um, as well as obstruction of justice and conspiracy and making false statements, I think the assignment to Judge Eileen Cannon, what she is doing there, actually has also informed the strategy of how to pursue the case against Donald Trump for the crimes that he was just charged with here, and whether it was going to be a more expansive case, a shorter case. I think that Special Counsel Jack Smith, like I think you and me, um, believe that you can't trust Judge Eileen Cannon. So even though there's currently a May 2024 trial date, with all of the things that she does, you know, is that really the date, May 2024? On the other hand, in a little bit, when we talk about the judge who was uh, assigned this case, we'll talk about it a little bit, Judge Tanya Chuckin, law and order ju judge, no-nonsense judge, the only judge in D.C. who's actually sentenced uh, January 6th insurrectionists to greater prison sentences than even what the DOJ asked for. Judge Tanya Chutkin has previously been on a case in D.C., federal court filed by Donald Trump. She made that big, big ruling. The first big January 6th committee ruling came from Judge Tanya Chutkin, where Donald Trump filed an injunction to try to block the National Archives from turning over to the January 6th committee all of the records that were uh, made and produced and created during his administration, that first tranche of records, that was like the first big January 6th committee battle. Trump filed an motion, a, a case for an injunctive relief, trying to block the committee, trying to block the archives, and in a very powerful order back in 2021, which you and I talked about back in 2021, as well as the Chutkin sentences, so legal AF viewers will know Judge Tanya Chuckin, but in that 2020-2021 ruling, she says, presidents are not kings, Donald Trump is not the president. These documents don't belong to him, and turned him over to the January 6th committee over Donald Trump's executive privilege assertions, and that began a whole series of losses for Donald Trump, where he probably lost, I'm not making this number up, probably close to a hundred, maybe two hundred other assertions of executive privilege before other D.C. federal judges, but Judge Tanya Chutkin was the first, and we'll talk more about her, we'll talk more about the magistrate judge in just a moment, but just a few other places in the indictment that I wanted to talk about, just so everybody could get a sense of how precise this is written, like if you go to paragraph 90, for example, and this is the section that talks about Donald Trump's threats to former Vice President Mike Pence, and by the way, 
Pence is a witness. I mean, just think about that, that you're going to have the, he's testified before the grand jury, you're going to have a former vice president as one of the key fact witnesses against Donald Trump. And so I'm just going to read you one paragraph, for example, but this is what a jury is going to hear. It's going to hear the following. On January 1, Donald Trump called the vice president, berated him because he had learned that the vice president had opposed a lawsuit seeking a judicial decision that at the certification, the vice president had the authority to reject or return votes to the states under the Constitution. The vice president responded that he thought there was no constitutional basis for such authority and that it was improper. In response, the defendant told the vice president, you're too honest. You're too honest. Within hours of the conversation, the defendant reminded his supporters to meet in Washington before the certification proceeding, pleading the big protest rally in Washington, D.C. will take place at 11 a.m. on January 6th. Locational details to follow Stop and Steal. I very much believe that testimony comes directly from Pence. Also, we saw Donald Trump's lawyers kind of parading out this thing that all Donald Trump did was ask Pence to do was to pause the electoral count. It was just a pause, and Pence has already been interviewed saying, you know, in the past 48 hours, saying, no, it wasn't a pause. He wanted me to overthrow the election. Now, Pence has no spine at all otherwise, but but Pence over the past 48 hours has said, no, it wasn't a pause. He wanted me to overthrow the election. That's what he was asking me to do. And Pence is going to testify. That. One more paragraph that I want to show you just how in the weeds Special Counsel Jackson is, because I, I could spend probably five hours going through this today, and I'm not going to do that. This is an abbreviated summary and, and, and discussion that we do here on Legal AF. But, you know, Jack Smith goes in every battleground state with the exact same evidence that I'm going to be, you know, sharing with you here, but for each state with the state officials. You go to paragraph 81. On the afternoon of January 3rd, co-conspirator 4, who is Jeff Clark, who Popak you identified, spoke with a deputy White House counsel. The previous, the previous month, the deputy White House counsel had informed the defendant that there is no world, there is no option, Donald Trump, in which you do not leave the White House on January 20th. Now the same deputy White House counsel tried to dissuade co-conspirator 4 from assuming the role of acting attorney general. That's how we know it's Jeff Clark. The Deputy White House Counsel reiterated to co-conspirator 4 that there had not been outcome-determinative fraud in the election, and that if Trump remained in office nonetheless, there would be riots in every major city in the United States. Co Donald Trump's co-conspirator responded, well, to this Deputy White House Counsel, that's why there's an insurrection. Basically saying that Donald Trump was going to use the military on the American people. He was going to turn the armed, that was the plan. That's what, that's what a Trump deputy White House counsel provided testimony to the grand jury. Trump was going to use the military, I just want to be very clear, against the American people to claim power as a dictator. So, when people go, oh, well, it's a free speech, it's a free speech. No, that is not a free speech thing there. And finally, Popak, one other thing I wanted to mention, um, just so people understand, what are the sentences, the maximum prison time, prison time for these counts? The obstructing an official proceeding is a 20-year max prison sentence. Um, the conspiracy against the right to vote is a 10 years, and a uh, defrauding the United States count is five years. If you add up all of the counts from all of his cases, 
um, in terms of the prison time, when you're talking about the 70, 78 felony charges, I mean, you could be talking close to 500 years uh, in uh, prison right there. But Popak, I want to go over the judges. I want to go over some rulings that the judges have made this morning. I mean, this case is on a rocket docket and it is good to see law and order judges. Let's talk about the judges. Let's talk about what went down at the arraignment. Let's talk about what Trump's lawyers are saying. Let's talk about some of the motions that have been filed already. This has been a historic week and I want to remind everybody as well that we just launched MidasTouch.com, our new website. It's now the number one pro-democracy source of information. One of the things special counsel Jack Smith told everyone to do at the press conferences, read the full indictment after Legal AF. Go to MidasTouch.com. We have the full indictment there. Make MidasTouch.com your homepage and check back in for all of the breaking news. MidasTouch.com will supplement, complement all of the things we do here on the Midas Touch YouTube channel and the audio podcast. Let's talk about all this additional information when we come back from this quick break. As you know, I'm a trial lawyer, and when I'm not breaking down the latest legal filings today for you on Legal AF, I'm jumping from courthouse to meeting to meeting. It can be exhausting and, frankly, dehydrating. That's why I started using Liquid IV. Liquid IV... Poppy? How you doing, huh? Hi, dear. Hi, sweetie. How you doing, buddy? Hi. My little puppy dog. Hi, Hanky. Good morning, Hanky. Good morning, Bucky. Good morning, Buckies. Liquid IV. It's her 2021 ruling. Celebrate 20 years of great style and value at the Living Spaces Anniversary Event. Shop a huge selection of anniversary... Who Judge Tanya Chutkin is, her 2021 ruling regarding the January 6th committee turning over those records and that scathing order against Donald Trump back then. Talk briefly about the magistrate judge up at the Yaya. I hope I'm pronouncing the name correctly, and if I'm not, someone can correct me, and I will make a better effort in the next one. We talked, and also, one of the things we've seen during the arraignment, which I'm sure you'll talk about in a little bit as well, is how the magistrate judge was prepared for Trump's delay tactics. And she had already spoken with Judge Tanya Chutkin about, like, briefing schedules and when the next hearing was going to be on August 28th and, and all of that. But Donald Trump's already saying, unfair judges, unfair venue, unfair, unfair. Um, but if you can, Popak, talk to us about who this team of uh, the judges are, the federal judge and the magistrate. Sure. So a little bit of a primer. Federal magistrates are not what we call Article Three judges. They don't have lifetime appointment, but they are appointed for a term of years. And they handle at the federal level, especially civil and criminal. The, case, the dockets aren't split in federal court. Judges handle both federal dockets, federal criminal cases, civil cases, as well, you know, disputes over money and injury and that type of thing. Magistrates in the criminal context handle things as we've seen time and time again, because we've had now uh, four examples, three examples. Uh, they handle arraignments. They handle conditions of release, because remember Donald Trump 
was surrendered, arrested, digitally fingerprinted, and then released only on special conditions. And we'll talk about those special conditions. That's what magistrates do. They also generally supervise the search warrants, the search warrant process. I mean, there's a federal judge over that, a supervising judge over that, but they handle the logistics around the, the decision to issue a search warrant usually comes through a magistrate judge. We saw that in Mar-a-Lago with Judge Reinhardt, for example. Same thing here. Discovery issues and discovery disputes the production of documents and evidence and, and proposed evidence um, from the government to the defendant goes through, passes through the magistrate judge. So the magistrate judge is usually either the, for the day of an arraignment, whoever happens to be on duty that day, or it may be the magistrate judge that's, that's assigned regularly to the, her boss or his boss, the federal Article Three judge, the presiding judge, the district court judge. So the district court judge for this case is Judge Tanya Chutkin, Jamaican-American descent, worked at some amazing law firms, tremendously qualified, and was placed by Obama in the D.C. Circuit Court, which is one of the crown jewels of the federal judiciary. Not all federal courts are, are kind of equally um I have the credentials of others. If you're asking me which are the ones that are the feeder program for the Supreme Court and somebody be prepared to go to the Supreme Court, it's the D.C. Court of Appeals, the Federal Circuit, which is what we're talking in the Federal Circuit, the Circuit, the Court of Appeals for the D.C. Circuit, uh, and the Second Circuit in New York is, is where often a lot of these the Supreme Court justices come from. Ex recent example, Ketanji Brown-Jackson having gone this route. If it wasn't for the fact that she's now presiding over the case of Donald Trump, the most important federal prosecution of a former president in the history of our republic, I would tell you that I thought Tanya Chutkin could be on the shortlist and should still be on the shortlist for Joe Biden should he get another opportunity to appoint somebody to the Supreme Court. She's married to also a uh, uh, a state or territorial judge, former judge. Um, so being a judge uh, is the family business, family affair. She's eminently qualified. We've seen her in action involving Donald Trump time and time again. And as Donald Trump likes to note, and I think this is a good thing, not a bad thing, she has given the harshest sentences to Jan 6th insurrectionists, even above what the Department of Justice has asked for time and time again, and written opinions like the one that you referred to earlier, Ben, in which she reminded the world that in our republic, our constitutional republic, the president or former president is not a king. And she's very clear about that. If I were to pick a judge that Donald Trump would not want to see come up on the in, on the random wheel in D.C. for his indictment, Tanya Chutkin would be on my first two fingers. I could think of some other people. Some of those other people actually were in the courtroom for the arraignment. Just to t We're going to talk about who for Donald Trump was there and who's trying to continue to act like they're in his inner circle and why they are there outside the courtroom or inside the courtroom. But for, for, the, for the good guys, for the white hat, for the black robe, let me tell you who was there. The magistrate judge had her entire family there watching her. I thought was special and really heartwarming and it's she just got she just got appointed to that position a year ago she's Indian American and I think that's a that was an amazing gesture because she was arraigning a former president and that was important but also in the courtroom and it was the courtroom of the chief judge which is now Jeb Boesberg he decided to attend 
even though he had no role in the process, it was just his courtroom, he doesn't have to be there, but in his black robe, he sat in the gallery, the galley, or the not not on the bench. He didn't he didn't want to undercut the judge. You can see here in the courtroom sketch, his cameras were not allowed in the courtroom. You've got Todd Blanche standing at the podium. You've got John Loro covering his face there that the sketch artist caught. You've got uh, that's a pretty good rendering of Donald Trump, who also looks like the Grinch. Um, and then you've got Jack Smith off to the left. I believe that's Jack Smith because that's how close in these rooms these conf these tables are for the defense and the prosecution. And then you've got some other people in the back, and there's the magistrate judge sitting there. Now, you also had next to Jeff Boesberg, Eighth Judge Amy Berman Jackson, another district court judge who also, if I would believe she's on the short list for the U.S. Supreme Court, who has also been a very harsh critic of all things Jan 6th and the people in front of her when she sentences them, and Judge Randy Moss. So this was, and if, if anybody doubted how important of a day this was in, in the history of the, of the judicial system for America, seeing three district court judges watching the proceeding along with the family of the magistrate judge sort of disabuses you of any notion that things are as, as typical. This is just a typical day in the court. However, the process couldn't have been any more ordinary. The magistrate judge came in 24 minutes late. You and I will talk a little bit later who I think she was having a cup of coffee with before she hit the bench. And I think that was the district judge, Judge Chutkin, because she came in, unlike the magistrate judges that we see at Mar-a-Lago, Torres and the others, she came in having spoken to the federal judge, district judge, her boss, Tanya Chutkin, and she had messaging and direction to the defense and the prosecution about the trial date direct from the judge. So there was no question who was in charge of this whole process. Now, at the actual arraignment, Donald Trump stands up. What do you plead? First state your name, Donald J. Trump. Very interesting. Despite all the lawyers for Donald Trump in their filings calling him some combination of President Donald Trump, that's a lie. We don't have a we don't have a President Donald Trump. We have a former President Donald Trump. Former President. We almost never say former president. Or 45th president. Or what Donald Trump identified himself at the arraignment in New York three months ago, businessman Donald Trump. Donald Trump didn't, he, she didn't ask him his occupation, but he didn't say President Donald J. Trump. He said Donald J. Trump. John's, uh, James for John. I'm 77. Okay. Are you under the influence of any drugs, sir? Uh, that, that's, <laughs> that's a delight in that question. She could have skipped that question, but she wanted to make sure there was no impairment and that he was fully, fully present to, in order to confirm his understanding of the rest of the proceedings. And he said, without flinching, uh, I'm not. Okay. And then she had her own special conditions, some which this time the government, I think, as you said, Ben, learned their lesson from things in Mar-a-Lago. It's like artificial intelligence. They're learning every time they're interacting with Donald Trump and his band of lawyers and judges about how to improve. In Mar-a-Lago, they didn't ask for a special condition. And then the judge said, I'm going to insert one. Judge Goodman said, Magistrate Judge Goodman said, you know what? I don't want that guy, the Trump, talking to witnesses. 
all right, except through lawyers. So I'm going to make that a special condition. You make up a list, and we'll have a list about who we shouldn't talk to. It's a whole big elaborate thing. Here, the government asked, and the magistrate judge ordered, that he have no contact with witnesses that are expected in the case. She didn't create a list process, um, which I think is already very difficult to enforce since he's flying home on a plane. He flew home on a plane with Boris Epstein, co-conspirator number six, Walt Nauda, who's continuing to be a co-defendant in a superseding indictment at Mar-a-Lago, and others. So I, you know, and, and, and presumably maybe even Evan Corcoran, he's already potentially violating these orders. But that was put in place by the magistrate judge as a condition of release. And once he accepted and read through, he, there's you know reporting that he sat and he shuffled papers and read through the conditions, and, and then he had to get sworn in again under oath before he accepted the conditions, signed as John Hancock or Donald J. Trump or whatever he did, and then this was over. But before it was over. The, the um, magistrate judge had a message for from the judge, Judge Diamond Chepkin. She said the judge wants the government's position on the trial date and a response from Donald Trump no, 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 in the next no, 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 no. week or two. And, and a hearing no. I'm going to set right now for no. Judge Chutkin. And I'm giving you three dates to choose no. from, 23, 24, and 28 of August. That's your that's your date in front of Judge Chutkin. And Judge Chutkin, no. has, and they picked the 28th, the defense. No. And Chutkin has already told them that on the 28th, having heard from the government, having heard from the, pro, the, the defense, she is going to set the trial of this what amounts to the third indictment of Donald Trump by Jack Smith. And my prediction, and Ben, I know you're, you got your own view on this, is that with the targets on the calendar, of we know in March of 2024 we're going to trial Donald Trump, people versus Donald Trump, in New York, Judge Mershon for the Stormy Daniels hush money cover-up business record fraud case. We know in May at least for now, subject to shenanigans in front of Judge uh, Cannon, we have on the calendar at least a trial in May of 2024 in which she split the difference between what the government wanted and what they wanted across the defense on the Mar-a-Lago case, even with the superseding indictment. And we know that in November we have an election. So where do you think, Ben, this judge who is rocket docket, as you said, all about justice, efficiency and knows that the world in history is looking at her. When do you think she sets the trial for this? February? <laughs> Unlike so before. Before before even New York's trial. Yeah, I mean I, I think that she could have a placeholder date before New York's trial. You see what happens and then maybe you slot it in for April. You see what, you know, and what's interesting is, you know, on this kind of chessboard, if you will, that we're putting up here, if Judge Eileen Cannon now kicks her May trial date, then Judge Chutkin slots this in for May. So it act, So if you go back to the hot take that you and I did that we got some pushback for when the case was assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon because you and I were like... I'm not really worried that the case got assigned to Judge Eileen Cannon. It, it wasn't because we weren't worried about Judge Eileen Cannon. It's because we case. had a great deal of confidence in Special Counsel Jack Smith and the precision and 
fluidity within which he exercises prosecutorial discretion and makes moves. So if you think about it strategically now, right, even if now Judge Eileen Cannon wants to kick her trial to 2025, well, that's perfect. <laughs> now you get the other trial right there in that April and May period. And so I think that you'll probably have the judge slotted in on a speedy trial basis, early 2024, Judge Chudkin will. And if there's any changes and alterations from canon, I think it gets moved back. I think ultimately the trial probably is an April, uh, is about an April trial. But I think what you're going to see, April or May, but we'll see, you know, obviously you can't have overlapping trials. And then one of the things we'll also see is if there's coordination from a scheduling standpoint between the feds and state prosecutors of, hey, Manhattan District Attorney, yeah, you got that March trial date, but this one's a little more important. Can we move ours here uh, in in March? So you may be seeing some of that. What, what, what's your thought? No, I think you got it exactly right. And, um, and the, the other um, data point that reinforces that your analysis is what we talked about, which is Jack Smith in, got the indictment right before the Tuesday hearing in Mar-a-Lago to talk about the trial date. And we said that was messaging from Jack Smith's team to Judge Cannon, which is you are not going to be the only district court judge that's going to have defendant Donald Trump in front of them. There, I have another case and I got another judge. In other words, the eyes of not only history are on you, Judge Cannon, but your other, you know, at a, at, let's be frank, you know, yes, they're all Major League Baseball players, but the, the federal district fucker. court in Washington is the fill-in-the-blank New York Yankees, Los Angeles Dodgers, and, you know, she's the Miami Marlins, although they're doing pretty well this year. My point is, this is a bigger, badder federal judge in a more elite unit than Judge Cannon. And this is also Jack Smith's portfolio theory, which I've talked about in the past, which is I'm going to bring three or four indictments or more between superseding and co-conspirators. He may win one or two. He may get a hung jury on me in one jurisdiction, but he's not going to he's not going to run the table and win. You know, whatever the number is, 78, 100 felony counts uh, in four different jurisdictions. And then if we take that one extra layer, he's not going to do it in in adding New York and then Georgia, because in order for him to survive this gauntlet of cases and get to the White House intact, which I think is virtually impossible, he has to run the table and win like six separate cases in front of juries, many of which are being pulled from areas that are not pro-Trump. Washington, D.C., the site of the Jan 6 insurrection, is not going to be filled with Trumpers. Okay, New York and Manhattan is not filled with Trumpers. We saw it already when a jury convicted his, his uh, company of 17 taxation counts uh, and all of that. Georgia and... Not Georgia, Fulton County, Georgia, Atlanta, which is the bluest of blue in, in Georgia, is not going to be a, a world where Trump is going to be holding a MAGA rally or where he wants to pull a jury from. So this magical thinking that Donald Trump and his lawyers, and we'll talk about things that they've said out loud, which indicate that they confirm the conspiracy rather than provide a defense to their client, 
um, this magical thinking, like, you know, like a unicorn is going to show up in my backyard and crap gold bricks, is sort of Donald Trump's theory about how he's going to be president of the United States. You know, when he says in a rally, well, I hope I get indicted again. One more indictment, this thing will be over. Yeah, it'll be over in the Republican primary. But, but he's not generating any new independent or women voters every time he gets a, 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 a judge to be a rapist, a sexual, I'm sorry, sexual, a sexual abuser. Or he is is convicted of very serious conspiracies against our democracy. Okay, he'll get his thirty seven percent. I'll give another five. He'll get his forty three percent. But you can't win the presidency that way. And all of this stuff. And uh, I'll leave this rant on this: that the that the mainstream media, which you know to a certain degree in the investigative reporting area, does do well. And you and I do look at the stuff that they do, add on our own analysis, and when we can. But when they when they run stories like, well, there's been two other presidential candidates in history that have run from federal prisons. And they start talking about Eugene Krebs, and I'm like, are you effing kidding me? And Hitler. Don't put that out there. That's not real reporting. Yes, under our Constitution, even a convicted felon can be the president of the United States. That's a little quirk of our Constitution. We should fix that, by the way. Um, yeah. However... That doesn't mean that at the end of the day, the American people who I put tremendous amount of trust in as an, an entire election body, just like I do the jury system, is going to vote for the man. Well, let's now talk about what Donald Trump's lawyers have been saying, what they've been previewing uh, is their defense. I mean, from the just kind of absolutely absurd and comical and frankly, incriminating stuff against Donald Trump, like uh, Alina Haba. I mean, she was outside of the arraignment talking about Hunter Biden. And uh, she also said everybody knew that he lost the election. Everybody, everybody knew. It. <laughs> so you have Alina Haba, which is at this point so deranged that it probably doesn't even it doesn't even it's not worthy of a serious legal critique of what she has to say. John Morrow but I think he's a very unserious he's presented himself as a very unserious person so here are the kind of main things that they've been messaging in terms of the defenses that they're going to rely on the Trump legal defense team you know I guess led in part by this new lawyer John Morrow advice of counsel which is that Donald Trump relied on John Eastman and Giuliani and other lawyers who told him that this was not a crime put a pin in that one for a moment the other one I talked about is Donald Trump saying he has a free speech right to overthrow our democracy and the other two kind of ancillary issues they've been messaging is this indictment is a great thing because now we get to conduct discovery and prove the 2020 election was actually stolen now we get to go and send in you know and send subpoenas to uh, Brad Raffensperger and prove that he's wrong you know that's not going to happen. <laughs> All of these things have been debunked. And of course, the data that Special Counsel Jack Smith's going to turn over is Trump. Here's the research teams that you paid. Your political action arms paid these two research teams, each close to $1 million each. And they told you there was no fraud. How about you subpoena your own people? How about you look at your <laughs> own data? So that's the, one, the other thing. We're going to get great discovery. No, you're not. It's just going to get more incriminating from here on out. And the other thing they talk about about is we're going to try to move this case to West Virginia. We're going to transfer it out of D.C. 
absolutely zero chance of Judge Tanya Chutkin granting a venue change motion. Um, the Sixth Amendment of the United States Constitution specifically says that the cases are to be tried where the crimes take place. That's, for example, why Special Counsel Jack Smith had to file the case of Donald Trump's willful retention of national defense information in the Southern District of Florida. Only in the most extreme of cases where you know, someone can't get a fair trial, like in a situation where the prosecutor gives a press conference and says, we are targeting this person. Like only in that situation, which has not occurred here, would there be a transfer granted. Numerous January 6th insurrectionists, all the way up to one of Donald Trump's co-conspirator terrorists, Stuart Rhodes of the Oatkeeper, who sought to have the venue changed before Judge Emmett Mehta, citing the exact same things Donald Trump's going to say. Oh, it's a democratic area. Washington, D.C. votes Democrat because the insurrection happened in D.C. You can't get a fair trial. All quotes say the voir dire process, the jury selection process, cures any of those issues. Um, and then even the Trump-appointed judge, Judge Carl Nichols, had been presented in the past with venue change motions, and he has uh, rejected those venue change motions with January 6th insurrectionists. And Judge Carl Nichols has made some unfavorable rulings from a law and order perspective in favor of January 6th insurrectionists, but even he didn't transfer the case. So zero chance the case is going to be transferred. When you talk about an advice of counsel defense, Donald Trump would have to take the stand for an advice of counsel defense. He'd have to waive his Fifth Amendment rights because he could, the lawyers for Trump couldn't say, this person will confirm that Donald Trump was taking the advice of his lawyers. This person will say that. That's hearsay. So to get around here, it's inadmissible hearsay. So Donald Trump would have to take the stand and he'd have to say, here is the advice that I took from the lawyers and here's why I was misled by the lawyers or here's what John Eastman told me. And then Trump would open it up for all cross-examination across all issues. He's not going to take the stand. He is a very, very scared person. We'll talk more about that in a bit, just how scared he is. Backtracking after making this threat from special counsel Jack Smith called him out. So advice of counsel, just that's not going to work. Trump would have to take the stand there. Um, and then we talked earlier in the episode that it's not a free speech issue to engage in a conspiracy to overthrow our democracy. And we gave you earlier in this episode very specific concrete examples. But again, go to MidasTouch.com to read the full indictment because, again, we can spend hours talking about it here. But there's very specific concrete examples of how Donald Trump did this on purpose. He knew what he was doing, trying to change votes from Biden to Trump trying to change electoral votes um, from Biden to Trump, and that's illegal. You, you can't do that. And as Special Counsel Jackson says, look, Trump, if you want to say you won, and if that makes you feel good, and you want to lie to the people, that's upsetting that you would say that. It's, it's, it should be disqualifying, but you don't, you don't, that's not the crime. The crime is where you weaponize that and then affirmatively, um, affirmatively take action. Um, right there as well. Um, you know, and, 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 and then we're going to cover this in a little bit as well, but there's been a lot of filings taking place earlier, you know, in the day, Popak, as well. Like, Trump's lawyers are already moving to delay to having to respond to the government's motion for a protective order um, until uh, the 10th of August. Um, they're asking to set the matter for oral argument, trying to get voter delay. So uh, we'll, we'll talk about that in a bit, but I, I wanted to hit upon the defenses and then kind of, I guess, the Trump 
strategy. Um, right, what, what do you think about what they're going to be, what they're they've been saying? About? Well, let's yeah. Let me let me unpack a couple of things, and let me give it let me give an example. The difference between speech that's protected that Jack Smith preempts and references as an attack on his indictment and conduct that isn't. You and I, Ben, and others in our audience, can stand in front of our local bank, and we can tell anybody that walks by that cares to listen that all the money in that bank belongs to me. Some, some cockamamie story about my grandfather founded the bank and all the bank, all the gold that's in, the, that's in all of the safety deposit boxes is mine. It's all of mine. You're allowed to do that. You might sound like a crackpot. People might take you away. But you can do that. What you can't do is get together with your buddies in the middle of the night and put on ski masks and break into the bank and actually take the money. That's the difference between protected First Amendment speech and criminal conduct that will only get you jail time. That's the difference between with Donald Trump. It's one thing to say, I think I won the election. I don't think I knew that woman that I sexually abused in the uh, in the uh, dressing room of Bert Jeff Whitney, June Carroll. It's another thing to do things in conduct that are at variance with the law or judgments or rulings or findings. Um, and that's what Donald Trump is being accused of. And that is the difference. A difference that sounds complicated, I guess, when you're trying to create um, interference and you're trying to mislead people in your talking points, but is really, really clear 